to episode four of Trans Regret Snoopy Presents the Bible. I'm doing things a little differently this week. I decided to try a solo Bible study for the first time um, for an episode. Obviously, uh, most of the reading that I do of the Bible is done by myself. So um, I decided to dive pretty deeply into one of the minor prophets, as he's called, Habakkuk. And this is um, Old Testament prophet who had a unique connection to God, one that was uh, obviously very um, tumultuous at times, um, but one that was very strong, um, you know, direct dialogue, direct connection. So I'll just dive right in. Uh, I think it's uh, it's really relevant to what it is uh, we're feeling as a culture, as a world, at this time, and uh, as we deal with the pandemics and we deal with uh, societal unrest and, and things like that, and I'll talk a little bit more about that later. So Habakkuk chapter 1, the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. Habakkuk's complaint. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear, or cry to you violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. This is the cry of a man who sees a society that he feels is um, upside down, the evil uh, benefit and the, um, the good do not prosper, the good are suffering. Um, this is not a unique uh, concept. Uh, it's one that we actually discussed a little bit in our episode on Jonathan and David, but it is one that obviously um, is relevant to our time now uh, as we see so much strife in the world and we see violence and um, we see pandemics that are killing hundreds of thousands of people. And, uh, in this fallen world, what are we to do but turn our eyes up to God and say, what the hell, man? Like, what's going on here? Why, why is everything this way? What, what are you doing? Are, are you ignoring us? Are you um, forsaking us? Or is there something else um, going on? So, uh, verse 5 is the Lord's answer. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth 
to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men whose own might is their God. He is saying, I can't explain to you what I'm doing, but trust that there is something greater happening here. I'm raising up a nation of killers, of invaders, uh, who take down any fortress, who attack any people. Their God is their strength. But why? We'll move on to verse 12. Habakkuk's second complaint. Are you not from everlasting? O Lord my God, my Holy One, we shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for a proof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet. So he rejoices and is glad. Therefore he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? I'm going to pause here, although the next, um, the next chapter kind of carries into this same complaint. Um, they are essentially um, prosperous, this nation of, of uh, terrible people, as Habakkuk is saying. Um, but he is acknowledging that their God is an idol. Their God is their net, their wealth. That this prosperity, this... Um, this advantage that they have in the world is what they worship, not the God that has provided that to them, but the wealth itself. And there's obviously a lesson to be learned there about um, valuing your earthly possessions and your earthly power and your wealth over God. In chapter 2, the second complaint of Habakkuk continues, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. So now Habakkuk has stepped back and he said, okay, well, you heard what I had to say. You've heard my complaints. What do you have to say for yourself now? This is an, a really lovely one-on-one uh, -on -one conversation with God that is um, obviously not something that most of us get a chance to experience. So to see Habakkuk 
taking this on with, uh, with almost a confrontational attitude is really fascinating to me. I really love it. Um, and, and it's a challenging uh, passage. It's one that does bring up these doubts, these fears, these questions of why God acts the way that he does. It's something that I know that I've brought up before on the show, and it's something that I really grasp or grapple with um, every day of my life. Doubts are real, they're natural. It's perfectly normal to look at the world around you, especially in a time of strife and difficulty. Look at the world around you and say, where is God now? Where is he and what is he doing? Why is he acting this way? Why is he allowing people to act this way? Is this God at work or is this human beings at work that God is allowing to um, behave this way? Chapter 2, verse 2, The righteous shall live by his faith. And the Lord answered me, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come, it will not delay. So we have... Habakkuk going from a confrontation to a waiting. He's looking. He's, um, he's waiting in his tower, looking out for God's action. And God says, get some, get some notepads. I want to be perfectly clear about this. And, and make sure you get this all down because it may not all come right away. It may not all make sense right away, but you need to have this clearly. In verse 4, behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. I'm going to repeat that section because this is a really, really important passage. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith, or their faith, if we want to go gender neutral with it. The righteous people live through their faith. They may not always know why it is that things are happening the way that they're happening and they may not always like the way that things are going but you have to continue to be faithful and you will continue to be righteous believe that there is a power at hand that's greater than yourself and you will be on the right path in verse 5 moreover wine is a traitor an arrogant man who is never at rest I'm going to pause there because this is a translational kind of issue that I've noticed. Um, New Living Translation and The Voice, which are two very um, modern translations, are both at odds here as to what that particular phrase means. Apparently, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, that particular phrase is listed as a wealth is a traitor. And in the original Hebrew text, they see wine as a traitor. So whether this is an entreaty about, um, again, valuing wealth over God, which I think goes along with the message of the passage so far, or whether they're mentioning drunkenness as they do later in this book, uh, is is to be kind of left to interpretation. I, I can't tell what is more uh, appropriate in this part particular sense because, well, they've already mentioned wealth, they've been talking about wealth and power, but they do go on later, as we'll see, 
to talk about drunkenness. So, Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all people. The way that it's written, I'm inclined to think that wealth might be a more accurate word to be using there, but um, that's up to uh, your interpretation too. Woe to the Chaldeans, this is verse 6. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own for how long and loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them because you have plundered many nations. All the remnants of the people shall plunder you. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. This is God saying it will be made right. Despite the fact that it doesn't appear that way at present, eventually the debtors will come back uh, to, to, to haunt them, essentially. The debtors will rise up. The people that you conquered will rise up. And they will come back. And... Um, and you will see the same violence that you enacted on other people. Verse 9. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house and sets his nest on high to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have for forfeited your life, for the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. I love that little metaphor, and um, I want to pick it apart a little bit more, but I, I have a little bit of trouble um, doing anything other than picturing these um, anthropomorphized uh, pieces of building material. For the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, it is not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor peoples labor merely for fire, and nations weary themselves for nothing. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. If you build your empire on violence and cruelty, then you will be given violence and cruelty in return. There is no escaping God. I think this is what this last section is saying. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. As sure as there is the ocean and the giant expanses, you will see retribution for your evil uh, acts here on earth. And that's not to mention any kind of, uh, any kind of mention of uh, eternal torment and hell. They do mention Shaul uh, earlier, and I'm sure you heard that, but remember that Shaul was not necessarily hell in this context at this time. They spoke of it as kind of like an underworld for the dead, um, but not not the area or the, the, the zone of eternal torment. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. 
the cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you, and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them, for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. We have another mention of circumcision here. This is obviously a very important cultural practice, but I kind of want to gloss over that because I don't really think that that's the important detail here. They're saying, um, you get your um, you get your neighbors drunk to laugh at their um, their absurdity and to humiliate them, but drink up because you will be humiliated in turn. Again, this is kind of a tit for tat thing. What prophet is an idol? When its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. This idol can't speak. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake, to a silent stone, Arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. The Lord is in his holy temple, alive and speaking. This is to say that the idols that other uh, other cultures or other societies are worshiping are inanimate objects. They can't talk back. They can't act. They don't move people in the way that this God does. It is overlaid with gold and silver, so it's beautiful. It's very ornate. It's very valuable in earthly terms, but it essentially does nothing for the people that um, the people that worship it. This is moving into chapter three, Habakkuk's prayer, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, according to Shigianoth. I had to look up how to pronounce that one. Verse two: O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Teman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran. Selah. Uh, Teman and Mount Paran, in reference to geographically to Israel, is in the east. So I think the, the metaphor here, and I've heard a couple of other people say something like this, the metaphor here is it's like the rising sun. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. And then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. So, God is, a, is essentially this, this massive force, a hurricane, that has plague in front of it and pestilence behind it. It is pure. It's, it's clean and very powerful, but it is surrounded by uh, uh, terrible things. And I saw the tenants of Kushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea? When you rode your horses 
On your chariot of salvation, you stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. Selah. So Selah is this phrase that you see in, in the Psalms and in other places in the more sort of poetics um, in the Old Testament, and it's basically like a, um, a prayer ritual word. I think I might have mentioned that in the Psalms episode as well. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging water swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear. God has a golden chariot of salvation. He has a, a quiver full of arrows that is that he's ready to um, unleash on the world. Um, he's splitting the earth and creating rivers. Uh, this is uh, odd because the image that we had was God entering society as it already exists. I think earlier on in the verse is how I was reading it. But now they're saying, well, he's creating new, new land. Um, so he has the you know all of the beautiful armor. He has all of the beautiful uh, weapons, and uh, he's ready to to take it back. He's ready to make things right in the world. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped. At the flash of your glittering spear, you marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. Selah. That's a very vivid, very violent image. Um, but again, it is God acting on evil. It's God acting against the wicked and um, giving them their comeuppance, so to speak. In verse 14, you pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. He killed the warriors of the evil leader with the leader's own arrows, which I think is to say that the, um, the repayment for doing evil deeds and conquests in this way is that the people will turn against themselves and eventually you'll wind up being responsible for the deaths of your own people, even if all the while you were just trying to grow this uh, wonderful kingdom for yourself and your people. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Interesting. So Habakkuk is praying, I see your power, I know your power. I see, um, you know, I watch it with awe. And as I see it, I can feel it like my body is falling apart. Rottenness enters my bones, my lips quiver, my legs tremble. I am so in fear and in awe of a God that can act so directly in this way and is acting so directly in this way. Yet, 
I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. So it's to say, but it hasn't all really happened yet. So I'll continue to wait. He's in his tower, remember. I'll continue to wait because God is good and the right things will happen. Habakkuk rejoices in the Lord. Verse 17, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. To the choir master with stringed instruments. This little bit at the end is like a note on how to how to orchestrate this particular song. But uh, 17 through 19 is, I think, the part of this book that gets quoted most often. And it's for obvious reasons. In times of struggle, be they droughts, um, be they pestilence, um, in our world, a pandemic, societal unrest, uh, authorities acting outside of their authority, and um, people being cruel to in, each other in ways that I can't remember ever having seen now in my more than 30 years um, on earth. Um, Though the fig tree should not blossom nor fruit be on the vines, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. So no matter what, no matter how terrible things seem to be, I will still delight in God. I will still pray. I will still thank God for what I have or um, even what I don't have. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. This is a very visual um, metaphor again. It is to say deer's um, hooves, which are hard, are uh, helpful for climbing mountains. We've seen goats, you know, same same idea, the goat hooves. And I'm picturing a deer on a, on a high rock wall climbing and steady because of those hooves that God has given it. And that is how we must navigate the world in, in, in dangerous times and in difficult times with trust that the tools that are given to us will see us through. We will not fall off the face of the mountain because um, we have these deer feet, which sounds kind of funny when you say it out loud, but the um, he makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. Now, that particular phrase, he makes me tread on the high places, isn't necessarily to say that he puts me always in these situations that are difficult, but he allows me, this is what the voice, um, the voice translation says, he allows me to walk on high places. He helps me in that way. I like the way that, um, I like the way that the passage in 16 is done in the voice as well. I, I listened and began to feel sick with fear. My insides churned. My lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones. I stood there shaking. Now I wait quietly for the day of distress. I sit and wait for the time when disaster strikes those 
who attacked my people. Now, we're taught to love our enemies, right? We're taught that um, that no matter what, we should be praying for our enemies. This is um, obviously a lot more prevalent, a lot more important um, in the New Testament. But here, Habakkuk is saying, I will just sit and wait because you will get yours. Trust me, you will get yours. Um, it's a little petty, uh, kind of funny in that way that um, I know how strong God is. I know that he has the shiniest spear. I know he has the most beautiful golden chariot. I know that he has uh, you know, the best weapons and the best weaponry and, and the, the, the strongest uh, you know, the strongest skills with those weapons, but um, in that way, then I will, I'll just sit back. I'm going to kick it and wait for God to, to tell you what you've done wrong and to act on that. In the New Living Translation, uh, the bit about the dear feet back into verse 19, the sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes me as sure-footed as a deer, able to tread upon the heights. So obviously, that's a very clear message and one that I think we would be um, wise to remember in times like this where we are persistently challenged or persistently um, fought. Uh, We are called upon in times like this to remember that God is with us, that no matter what is happening, and oftentimes what is happening is not going to please us, that there is a God out there and that that power is still within us, that the skills and the strengths and the gifts that God has given us are still with us. You can't take the hooves off of a deer. Well, you can, but it would be gross. Uh, I found a little passage in The Imitation of Christ by Thomas Akempis, which is a very dense, very beautiful, but um, a very kind of an intense read. And I would uh, advise anybody who hasn't had the chance to dig into that yet. There's like a, you know, three or four books that are like foundational outside of the Bible to to Christianity and and really having trust in in faith in God, and this is one of them. Uh, in this, this is from uh, page one sixty one in the Imitation of Christ. If in any perils and doubt you do not stand according to the outward appearance, but if in every such doubt you enter into your soul by prayer, as Moses went into the tabernacle to ask counsel of God, you will soon hear the answer of our Lord, which will instruct you sufficiently in many things, both present and to come. We read that Moses always had recourse to the tabernacle of God when doubts and questions were to be solved and that he there asked the help of God through devout prayers in his own perils and danger, as well as in those of the people. So you should enter into the secret tabernacle of your own heart, and there ask inwardly, with good devotion, the help of God in all such doubts and perils. So this is it. Um, You're going to suffer. Um, This is... This is not always going to be a a really fun ride. Uh, Some of us have a little bit more of a likelihood of of, uh, seeing a little more suffering than others, but ultimately it's the human condition to to suffer in in one way or another. Sadness or death or loss, um, 
financial things that happen, uh, familial things that happen, things in your love life, that when in those moments of doubt and in the moments of why is this happening, what's going on, turn into the tabernacle of your heart. Um, go to the uh, place of worship within yourself and ask for help. It won't fail you. Even if the answer isn't what you want to hear, and even if the answer isn't a solution that you think is going to help a whole hell of a lot, you need to seek God from within at all times. And especially in those times like now where we are all really struggling. You know, I miss my friends. I miss my family. I, um, I think that there's a lot to be learned from Habakkuk here. Uh, it's not always the wisest move to raise your fists, shake them at God, and say, damn you, why did you do this to me? How could you? Why are these people doing better than me? Um, it's actually not super productive. Um, but Habakkuk has shown that. Uh, God says, and we don't all have the the luxury of having a direct one-on-one -on -one conversation in this way, but God says, in time, it will be made right. In time, it will be made right, and you need to trust that. I um, Obviously, I'm a little more brief this week than normal because I don't have uh, anyone else's perspective to share on this particular passage, but it was one that I thought was so important that we get through, that we dig into, and um, and I really uh, I really get a lot of feeling out of this um, out of this book. I've read it now in the two weeks that I've been preparing for this episode. I've read it probably a dozen times and listened to different translations and um, really tried to grasp what it means to um, to doubt in this way and to experience suffering in this way. And I hope that you've had. Um, a little bit of clarity on this book yourself. Uh, I hope you've been able to read along. I know I'm probably a little more scatterbrained than normal, given that I don't have anybody else to to keep me in line. <laughs> but I think um, I think you know this is something that everybody would benefit from reading and reading um, solidly all the way through, and and really trying to grasp these metaphors and get these visual effects that are going on here. I. Um, I wanted to thank uh, someone who left a, a nice review on uh, the Apple Podcasts uh, for the show. Uh, Mrs. Belden was the name, and uh, I'm assuming she said that um, the walking a mile or walking two miles was actually a reference to the um, a law that was written at the time. Uh, this is something that Jack and I were kind of struggling to understand when we first read through the um, Sermon on the Mount. And we both kind of were puzzled, like scratching our heads, like why would anybody make you walk a mile? Well, Mrs. Belden said, uh, the part about going two miles with someone who forces you to go one mile with them is because at the time Israel or Judea, whatever the proper name for the area is, was occupied by the Roman Empire and Roman soldiers were legally allowed to compel anyone they came across to carry their gear for them for a mile. I had no idea. So thank you so much for um, 
for helping clarify that. Uh, it was it was like a click, like oh, of course, which kind of reminds me of like the the, the forced um, housing of troops from the uh, era of uh, American independence um, and and that sort of struggle, which wound up getting written into the Constitution. So uh, very cool. Thank you so much for that. Um, I appreciate everybody that's left a review. I'm not going to harp on this too much because really uh, it doesn't matter how many likes or subscriptions or reviews this show has. If I've reached one person and I've gotten one person to read the Bible uh, and, and they hadn't or hadn't thought to, then I feel like I've succeeded in this. So um, I really, really appreciate everybody listening. I'm going to end the uh, episode this week with a, a poem by Jory Graham, who is just insanely talented. And um, the book Never, the poem is called Prayer. Over a dock railing, I watch the minnows, thousands, swirl themselves, each a minuscule muscle, but also without the way to create current, making of their unison, turning, re-enfolding, entering and exiting their own unison in unison, making of themselves a visual current, one that cannot freight or sway by minutest fractions the water's downdrafts and upswirls, the dockside cycles of finally arriving boat wakes, there where they hit deeper resistance, water that seems to burst into itself. It has those layers, a real current, though mostly invisible, sending into the visible minnows, arrowing motion that forces change. This is freedom. This is the force of faith. Nobody gets what they want. Never again are you the same. The longing is to be pure. What you get is to be changed. More and more by each glistening minute, through which infinity threads itself, also oblivion, of course, the aftershocks of something at sea. Here, hands full of sand, letting it sift through in the wind, I look in and say, take this. This is what I have saved. Take this. Hurry. And if I listen now, listen. I was not saying anything. It was only something I did. I could not choose words. I am free to go. I cannot, of course, come back. Not to this. Never. It is a ghost posed on my lips. Here. Never. Thanks, everybody. <laughs>